0: I can hear just popping in quickly before the show starts. um There's going to be a couple of confusing points in this episode, uh, mainly because we recorded this one prior to the, including the intro and outro, prior to our interview with Carl Abrams and which was uh, the reason we put that one out first. Was because his book had just come out, uh, the Anton David book, and we just thought it'd be timely to put an episode out at the same time. So we sort of switched the episodes around, did an old switcheroo, and. Uh, yeah, so you're going to hear a couple of things that might not make sense. Like, part one is that I keep referring to it as episode 64 when it's actually episode 65. Um, secondly, I've mentioned the competition, which is now ended uh, the competition to win Tobias Churton's Alastair Crowley in England book. And actually, we have a winner of that now, um, Amber. Uh, who's already been informed and sent me um, the address to send the book to. So Mm -hmm. congratulations, Amber. Um, And yeah, so hopefully that clears up some confusion to regular listeners. Um, And now back on with our scheduled programme. Uh, hello there and welcome to episode 64 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Um, returning to what he may believe is his rightful throne, I don't know, um, the usurper himself, <laughs> um, Mark Satir. How are you doing, sir? Very good, thank you. And, um, and uh, you know, as I always say,
1: you know, the, the, the true spirit, well, the, the spirit sort of sitting now is that it does provide a variety of voices and attitudes and uh, opinions and opportunities to, to hear those not necessarily take them on board but who knows where they might lead you and so it's, it's it's very good to it's going to be very good to be here and it's very good to hear other
0: people as well other people i respect actually oh, i've got to say i'm trying to create a sort of uh, a rivalry tension. yeah tension and tension. rivalry drama no, for the no. uh anyway um so yeah so i think by the time this episode comes out I, i've extended it's getting desperate now mark I'm, I've, I've extended the tobias churton uh competition so if you want to win a copy of alistair crowley in england for free sent anywhere in the world um uh give us a come to citynow.co.uk. Episode, episodes look up episode 60 alistair crowley in england with tobias churton the uh competition extremely easy competition uh instructions are there um, and you can, I mean, I don't understand why more people haven't entered. I think we've got like four or five now, um, considering how many listens we have. That's that's kind of, they're either extremely lazy or extremely disinterested in this book. I can't quite figure out. And I don't see why they would I be. Don't, I, don't, I do not think that's the case. I think people sort of um, enjoy
1: and benefit from sitting now. It, we're, we're, they don't join, they they don't uh, sort of, uh, you know, tune in to, to, to join in a uh, 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 yeah competition so but anyways
0: oh okay so obviously uh doing something wrong but anyway this week we are covering a topic that uh is is of interest it's a topic that touches it it has tendrils that throw through most of the topics we we talk about on sitting now i
1: I would actually say if you think about the sort of um the pillars the, the 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 foundations of the western esoteric movement uh one of them one of them undoubtedly one of those core elements is, is what we're going to talk about today
0: yeah and returning to talk to us about that is Mark uh, um mark Stavish, who we had on a few episodes ago um a very good guest that he is and he, very given with his time again this week um but the the topic we're talking about of course is is freemasonry indeed uh, well, This this podcast.
1: Stands between. Uh, I said pillars there earlier. Literally, it stand and and metaphorically, it stands between the dark and light period pillars that are found in front of all the true sanctuaries of the mysteries.
0: Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, and Freemasonry. I mean, it's something we often bring up in in casual conversation just because like i say it touches it, it it touches on so many different aspects it's influenced so much you know so it's going to be a really interesting episode um mark Stavish has written a book recently called um the path of freemasonry um and we're going to be taking a look more specifically i suppose i mean a, a historical look a philosophical look and also an esoteric look in particular um uh, with with mark so uh, yeah enjoy that and uh, let's pop over to that now Hello there mark stavish thank you so much for coming back on the show i really appreciate you giving us some more of your time
2: oh well thank you very much for the invitation to return i'm i'm glad i didn't bore your listeners too much and that you've called me back
0: <laughs> anytime anytime um i think the first question is, i mean' we're, we're, today we're talking in, about freemasonry and in particular your book the path of Freemasonry um the uh, first question really is like why did you write this book what was the kind of you know the motivation behind it
2: Well, it is, of course, an updated version of uh, an earlier edition of the book that was published by Llewellyn in 2007, I believe. And I had written that book a few years after I joined the craft. And uh, this is my 20th year of having been entered, passed, and raised to the sublime degree of a Master Mason. And uh, that'll be in October, no, November, November of this year. And... uh, I wrote it as a kind of workbook for myself, a tool, but also something to share with other Masons, because at that time, we had one traditional observance lodge in the state of Pennsylvania. I think another one was being talked about, but traditional observance lodges weren't being uh, highly supported, even though the movement was, was growing and strong and much on demand because of the... Uh, Dan Brown phenomena, you know, the, the lost symbol and all of that. And uh, I wrote the book to demonstrate to some of my brethren who, while well intended, were ill-informed about the fundamental nature of masonry's relationship to the broader culture, in particular, you know, the, the, um, the growing scientific movement at the end of the Renaissance Uh, As well as the builders' guilds and why that was. I mean, I think I give the example in the book that, you know, ask many American Mason what G means and they tell you God, you know, and you you (laughs) (laughs) say, well, that that doesn't work out too well in French. No. So, um, (laughs) yeah. What is the G all about? And of course, we say geometry. But, uh, and then the other aspects, its relationship to esoteric movements, both before and after it. It has a interesting relationship to esotericism. Uh, so that being said, I, I I wrote the book as a tool, how to begin to use these things, because masonry is not very good at giving you practical working methods for all its tools, symbolism of tools. It doesn't really give you any on how to work with masonry.
1: Yeah, and it's a it's a very I from reading it I I it's a very digestible. You you've managed to take quite uh, complicated and and uh, rich information when and when I was reading it I was really struck by how in a, in a very methodical very approachable way you you've been able to allow the reader or you support the reader to digest that information i found that i, I found that very impressive actually
2: well and thank you very much because uh, you sometimes when you when you're writing you, you do well and you know it and sometimes when you're writing and it's really good, you know it. And I think two occasions of that were, you know, my book on aggregors. When that was done, it was so well, this is done. This is just uh, let's not if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, and the same was with the one on masonry, because I was writing it for both the Freemason and those interested in masonry, but also the idea of masonry as a path for the non mason. That is, the ideas presented in the book and their application don't require that you be a member of specifically a Masonic fraternity or a Masonic body. They're, they're equally applicable to a variety of Martinist, Rosicrucian, and, uh, and Templar bodies or Gnostic bodies as well, or even witchcraft in many ways. They you know, the, the, the have an application to those involved in, in certain neo-pagan approaches and and pagan revival the the, the reconstructionist revival groups yeah I yeah think,
1: i mean it's a, a i mean curious thing uh joel gardner apparently he was uh entered a apprentice mason and he joined the sphinx lodge it wasn't in malaysia but it's in that kind of part of the world and if and then within wicca within the culture of wicca there's a definitely a flavor it's more than the flavour, actually. Of, yeah, uh, yeah, really. Of, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the the um, so tip bees and so on. And, yes. um Yeah. And my understanding is also, I mean, it's just my understanding that uh, Joe Garden also had connections with other Masonic bodies like the ordo temper tempi say it again ordo tempi i say it again the oto, OTO, for, sure. the OTO <laughs> yeah. for some reason i get my teeth in i put my my teeth are coming. out. Uh, yes the oto that's easier to say isn't it that's less of a mouthful and um yes and uh, again you can see those those sort of masonic influences so um yeah uh, yeah so well, there,
2: there lies the connection of crowley to uh contemporary witchcraft that a lot of witches and wiccans wiccans is an offshoot of that i know we're going far afield here but uh are unfamiliar with but that's it we are going a far afield because it's easy you notice how easy we went in three steps four steps afield because of the tight connection the massive influence of masonic ideas masonic symbolism masonic literature just across vast aspects of primarily western but also global history
0: yeah it's vast isn't it i mean it really is vast it's uh it sort of touches so many different uh like you say different kind of uh spiritual groups but you know it also touches into popular culture uh mm-hmm. it's you know it, it's uh it's definitely a very influential and uh and i think actually that in a way that's kind of there's that you know there's going to be a portion of our listenership and i only want to touch on this kind of you know a little bit more briefly i suppose but i do feel we should you know for those who have heard the term and maybe in their local town have seen a lodge um it would be interesting to you know just very quickly talk about freemasonry i thought one way of um you know in a more broad sense rather i thought one way maybe we could talk about your own um journey into freemasonry what was it that appealed to you and kind of what is freemasonry to you and you know uh, generally speaking what what is freemasonry and what was your kind of uh you know what what drew you to it
2: well masonry is a big tent uh however it is essentially a uh organization that is both excuse me philosophical and fraternal and charitable. Unfortunately, I said both because uh, I meant both in the contemporary sense, it tends to be mostly fraternal and charitable, at least in the United States. It is one of the largest charities that gives between one and $2 million a day to charity, particularly children's burn hospitals through the shrine at no cost to uh, uh, the people receiving treatment. They even get picked up and dropped off and, uh, uh, and lodgings are often provided for them. So masonry is a, a massive, quiet charity, it does not seek recognition for what it does and on any level. Uh, it does receive it, of course. You see pictures in the paper or news uh, print or news releases at different times, or maybe in your media streams of uh, events, but that's okay. We, we don't go out of our way, though, to say, hey, look at us. We've raised money for this and that. It, it's just what we do. However, it is more than fraternity and it is more than charity. It is also philosophy. It is a philosophy that is behind all of that and which drives all of that. And that philosophical system is where uh, uh, much of the confusion comes in uh, because it's often lost or not well understood because it does not have a doctrine or a dogma. It has a set of symbols. It is, has a set of moral instructions and ideas, but you have to figure them out for yourself. Uh, You have to believe in the supreme uh, being, a grand architect. But what does that supreme being mean? That can be very different for everyone. Uh, We see that, well, with the exception of the the Grand Orient in France, that is, uh, we see in all of these lodges that, 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 that affirmed statement. So what is your understanding of the supreme being? What is your understanding of that? Same with the symbols. Uh, and therein lies a little bit of a problem because because there isn't uh, often a direct instruction on what some of these symbols mean beyond this, the, the, the the limited notion of uh, the 12-gauge ga- the, the, the rule or the square and compass and, and some clearly obvious symbolism behind this. Uh, the more esoteric aspects uh, often do get lost or ignored completely, at least in Anglo-Saxon lodges. And that has been turning around, by the way. Uh, Within the United States, and I believe Canada as well, but I'm not that familiar with it, we have uh, the traditional observance movement, which is going back to traditional methods of uh, uh, membership, meaning that you don't go through the degrees a degree a month for three months. And that was even during the colonial period that was possible. So that's not a new thing. But we just seem to do it faster for whatever reason now here in the traditional observance you have to wait a year between each degree and you have to present a paper to the open body of the lodge you know your understanding of something Masonic
1: and that's a far more engaging and um... Um, involvement with the the initiatory narrative, isn't it? It's far more yes. far more, You know, you obviously you're going to get more out of it, and uh, and its initiation in the in the in the you know fullest sense of the word to start again, isn't it? And that's that's sure. literally what it, you know.
2: And, and I think anyone who's seen a Masonic initiation, and and they have landmarks, which means things which they hold in common, but they can really be very different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. you're going to recognize it. If you're a Mason, you're going to recognize large pieces of it, but there may be things that you've never seen before. It's just not in your jurisdiction. It doesn't happen there. Uh, That said, within the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania, which I reside under, uh, we have a spectacular education program, and I wish more men would take advantage of it, and we have men from out of state, other jurisdictions seeking it. Uh, twice a year, and I'll be going to it again this year. Uh, in Elizabethtown Town, they have the Academy of Masonic Knowledge, which world-class speakers present uh, two speakers a day, and uh, and it's free to masons. I'm sure if you're a non-mason, you could probably just show up. I, I've never been asked for a card, you know. So I'm sure you could walk in. I don't in think you should be telling. And well. <laughs> and they live stream it too. You can often find it on on YouTube recently because of COVID, oh, wow. which is wonderful and. Uh, I think last year, uh, Chick Cicero was presenting. And of course he's well known for his work within the golden dawn and some Rosicrucian groups. So the Academy of Masonic knowledge of Pennsylvania is a spectacular group. And so is their scholars program. I can't say enough about it. And the Scottish Rite Southern jurisdiction is a a spectacular group. And of course, Art Hoyas wrote the introduction to my book, this one. And, and, uh, good friends of mine have just been elevated to their 33rds in the Northern jurisdiction. And they keep asking me to get involved again, because they said, look, the, the new grand master is just all about really good education. So, you know, it goes through cycles. I'm trying to make this clear that, you know, the, the organization is massive in the United States alone. It's massive, let alone worldwide. So to try and make a statement of what Freemasonry is Based on a local encounter or even a regional one or a national one uh, is always going to be partially in error
0: mm. yeah so I mean, I mean, maybe one way of looking at it is i mean the two the two rights that I always hear of are the York right and the Scottish right um, so maybe could we sort of very briefly touch on the differences between the two like what are they and what are the differences between the two in in
2: the United States? Let me speak to that, because that's what I deal with on a regular basis. All of your jurisdictions, to my understanding, give the three degrees uh, in York right fashion, according to whatever jurisdiction they're under. Uh, No, 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 I'm wrong. Uh, It's only, excuse me, Pennsylvania... In Massachusetts, do them. The others do them a Scottish rite uh, fashion. The York rights fashion of the three degrees is very simple, it's very clear and concise. Uh, the Scottish rite is far more elaborate. And uh, the Scottish rite, in terms of the fourth degree to 33rd, which is what most people are familiar with, is kind of like they like to call themselves the College of Freemasonry. Now all masons are equal, by the way. You need to understand that, regardless of degree, all master masons are master masons, and anyone who above that, all the degrees above that are simply, as we are told, an elaboration on the principles or points in the first three degrees. Now you can argue that back and forth all you want. You can read, um, you can read uh, uh, what is it, Albert Pike, and you read, can read commentaries on Pike, uh, his morals and dogma, and commentaries on the degrees. Uh, to get his sense of the esoteric foundation behind Freemasonry, and Scottish Rite in particular. But at the end of the day, all of the men in those degrees are Master Masons. And they are undertaking ritual work that has a moral lesson behind it that needs to be understood. These are morality plays, these initiations. And they are to teach you about life and death. In York Rite, from the fourth degree and above, which goes to the wow, 18th degree, I think. Some of these change. See, a lot of these things change over time. And I sometimes I might confuse a historical point with the current point. Those degrees are primarily Christian in nature and focus on the Knights Templar. Now, the Knights Templar in Scottish Rite, too. But for whatever reason, whatever historical reason, these degrees focus on Knights Templar and the Temple of Solomon, and they're beautiful to watch. I mean, they're spectacular to see them performed and to participate in.
0: Mm, we'll definitely come back to the Templar thing a bit later yeah. because that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, an int- that's something we were discussing before the interview. Actually, we'd like to know some of the links there. Um, so, I mean, looking, you know, at the origins of, of Freemasonry, one name kind of pops up, and that's Elias Ashmole. I was wondering if you could. Uh, Talk Because, I mean, we, we were saying, you know, how mainstream masonry does seem to sort of somewhat reject, in some parts of mainstream masonry at least, it does seem to sort of reject the kind of more esoteric origins and, and uh, practices of uh, Freemasonry. Um, Elias Ashmole seems to be a good starting point for looking at well,
2: that. Well, let me, let me just stop you there and say the reason for the rejection is simple. Uh, Freemasonry is a large body and it reflects its community. So when we opened up the doors in the post-war period to become a very large organization, and even after the Civil War, the American Civil War, when it became a very, very large organization, uh, and it was dealing with the anti-Masonic period as well a little bit, I think there was some involvement there that, that caused people to to want to shift away from things. When you When you go big you often find yourself at a point where you are shifting the intellectual dynamic. So the focus is on charitable work and fraternity, because men in those days were the primary breadwinner. And many of these fraternities acted as insurance companies. And, of course, you see like the Travelers Insurance Company that was started by Mason's. You know, the traveler is a traveling man. That's the question you'll hear. Are you a traveling man? Okay, it means are you a mason? But you know you have to know the reply, not just the question. <laughs> There's specific replies. And uh, so you saw many people joining these organizations, which was the high point of fraternalism in the country and in the world, really at least in the Western world uh, was to to join these organizations for the comfort that they might bring in case of um, as a mutual aid society. Now, the fantastic building boom of masonry took place around that time as well because of the fantastic wealth that poured into it. And unfortunately, many of those buildings were not able to be maintained over the last 30 years, 20 to 30 years, and even the last 10 years in particular so when we look at that movement away from esotericism or uh, or philosophical views uh, i believe that happened very early in the united states in american masonry i believe that to be the case and not so much within european masonry it's always been there to some more or less degree the esotericism uh, even if even if it's kind of a denied it's denied rather than ignored and in the, in the United States, it was ignored to the point where it became unknown. And and I've had discussions with degree masters in Scottish Rite who, well, that's Southern jurisdiction. Like, okay, but it's still Scottish Rite. I mean, your degrees are slightly different, but, you know, there'd be no Northern jurisdiction if it wasn't for the Southern. It wouldn't exist. At least in the United States, it is. So... Um, you know, trying to get that through to them is is very difficult, or has been very difficult. But you know, that's why things cycle through, and that's why we have the traditionalist observance uh, movement, we have the philosophical lodge movement, we have uh, operate uh, you know opportunities for men who are interested to to participate in the academy and and those things which uh, which have a, a more intellectual appeal.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, and also we can add your you know, your very agreeable book is, is a sort of antidote to that, isn't it? It's a very, it, 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 it emphasizes, I was very surprised actually to read that, well, in some ways surprised, in some ways surprised to, to read that sort of um, regular masonry was sort of shunning or sort of sweeping under the carpet a bit, the, the more, the sort of hermetic roots or the esoteric roots. Of, well, uh, the,
2: not Not even sweeping under the carpet, simply don't even know they exist anymore. And again, this has to be understood understood in a very hard and difficult way. This, uh, we have a phrase that says, guard you well, the Western gate. And that applies to any group or movement or family even. And uh, when you start opening the doors too wide because you're going after size, at some point you're going to add too much water to the soup. And that's really what happened. And a lot of the individuals with more on the ball, shall we say, simply left.
1: Yeah. And I, I would actually go so far as to suggest that you know the landmarks of masonry and one of the reasons why it survived and one of the reasons why we're sat here now talking about it and is because of the because of the um the deeply archetypal nature of those degrees and, and correct
2: full th- agreement it, that's it and, and people know there's something spectacular about them i'll tell you i mean you you cannot go through them and be unmoved i've, I've met men who haven't been in a lodge since they had their initiation but they remember very specific things about those degrees because they're, they're deeply moving and very well done often, even when they're not well done, they're well done. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's an experience so unlike what a young man and for young women, particularly if they're joining something like droid humane or uh co-masonry or one of those things, uh, <laughs> that were adoptive lodges. That the um, the experience is so unlike what you will have in your day-to-day life.
1: Yeah, and the psychodrama of uh, initiation. You know that the 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 uh, it gets under your skin. It comes to life within you in a way that you you, you people can't. You can't just
2: get from a book. A book's can go so far. It's not possible. It's simply not possible having, because you can read the ritual all you want. You can watch the ritual on video from somebody who's either reenacted it or, or recorded it or something, you know, uh, surreptitiously. However, it's not the same as the experience. And the experience is one which is often deeply moving as it's meant to be. And it has an effect on you. And that is a seed. And that seed Can has the potential to be nurtured and to help you grow. And really, what is that seed? And that seed is represented in the phrase, you know, we help make good men better. You know, so we're not like Yates said about the Golden Dawn. It's not a reform school, okay? We help good men become better. But what is that better? It is often a focus on the great question, why are you here? And what I mean by that is, Many people have seen pictures of it, the so-called Chamber of Reflection. Not all jurisdictions have them anymore. But the Chamber of Reflection was the first thing you you entered into when you petitioned to be a member. You weren't a member yet. You were still petitioning to be one. And there is a possibility that you would be, that would be the night of your initiation. But they would vote on your membership and then you'd be initiated. And... uh, You know, you sat down in front of a skull, an hourglass, a mirror, and a candle, and a pen and paper, and wrote your will. Now, some of the chambers are far more elaborate. They're very alchemical, and they have more symbolism, but those are the basic symbols in it. And the question is, why do you want to join the fraternity? Which is really asking, why are you here? Because this is an organization that could cost you your life. Now, Cagliostro Cagliostra was said to have been the, the last man sent to the prisons of the Inquisition because of his Masonic uh, affiliation. But there was an anti-Masonic movement in the United States in the mid-19th century. There have been various anti-Masonic movements. Uh, In 1933, I think it was, might have been earlier, might have been 32, but I think it's 33. um, You know, one of the first movements put down by the National Socialists was Freemasonry, as I was trying to tell my, my son earlier. And, and then of course the communists just wipe them all out. The, the fundamentalist uh, Muslims wipe them out every chance they get.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But people do forget, you know, that uh, Freemasons were, t- t- were the victims in concentration camps and war, inverted red triangles, and people, people are surprised actually uh, yeah, that that part of the, the history is. Is sort of um, doesn't have the sort of focus that other parts of it do, so yeah.
2: Well, because uh, the, you're looking at maybe the numbers aren't even certain. Was it 200,000? Was it 300,000? We're not certain. I believe it's around 200,000 Masons, but even with that, I mean, I have letters here from the 1980s written to me by men. Uh, one is in German, and he uh, was telling me how his friend successfully defended uh, a mutual friend against charges of being a Freemason in East Prussia in the 30s. Now at that point, Hermann Göring would have been the head of the Gestapo in East Prussia. So he successfully defended him in court against these charges. And other movements fell under those charges too. Uh, Prior to Action Hess in 1940, I think that was May, April, May 1940, um, somewhere in there, when Rudolf Hess uh, flew to Scotland for reasons never certain, or at least never publicly discussed, uh, there was a crackdown on occult publishers and bodies in Germany and occupied Europe at that point yeah and that um, was gone sorry that's what triggered it
1: yeah and my and my understanding is like kalgurma who was uh strongly linked with the uh temple of oriental i'll say it again order of oriental templars or the ato um he he, he survived the concentration camp and uh, due to um, his associations with that body and um, and in the end he survived and he, he emigrated to New York but uh, again, you know that's a, a you know a fascinating
2: you know living part of history there well and Franz Barden you know he's he's reported to have been there as well prior to vanishing into the prisons of uh, the Czech Communist secrets police sometime in the 1950s I think 53 it was somewhere in there uh, so these movements have uh, always been suspect by totalitarian regimes
0: and do you you think i mean we were talking about this earlier and i don't want to fuel the fan the flames of idiocy um but do you think that maybe some of these kind of um early persecutions have kind of drifted into the modern conspiracy parlance a little bit
2: well, I don't think they know of them because otherwise they wouldn't be thinking of the conspiracy uh, of Masonry in that way. Um, you know, Masonry, they look at it in terms of oh, the American Revolution, or sometimes they try to pin the French Revolution on it. Uh, or we look at Garibaldi and the Wars of Italian Unification, and some other places where Masonry played a role, or should I say, masons played a role, and then sometimes Masonic lodges were used for meetings. Uh, we know that in Ireland often uh, with the IRA, but also at times in the South with the Ku Klux Klan. You know, it's a local thing. You you can't control what locals do. You, know, you can just control who you let in. And, and this is where that, that problem comes in. Uh, people in an organization may be doing things that are illegal or unethical or immoral, but it doesn't mean the organization is doing it. Or supporting it or even knows about it especially when it's a big body so we say guard you well the western gate for that reason i think within modern parlance the problem of uh masonic conspiracy theories is that they're fundamentally stupid and uh, I, I mean that in in the, in the technical sense of the word stupid you know it, it doesn't do any good it doesn't really prove anything they're, they're unprovable uh, even if you could prove it what 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 would it do for you? Uh, and it's always, there's an excuse as to why someone who's telling you contrary information is wrong. You know, well, you don't know. Well, how do I not know? Well, you're not high enough. How do you know I'm not high enough? How, how many, how many 30 thirds do you know? How many 30 thirds do you know? How, how many 30 seconds do I, uh, do I, am I, or do I, you know, do you know how many grandmasters have you met? You know, it's that type of thing, and then it's with them. It's never any, or they'll have one guy who said some strange thing about, well, this 30-second told me. Okay, so one guy tells you that makes it true. You now we we have a. I say to anyone who's who thinks that these conspiracies are real, just join a lodge, go see what happens for real.
1: Also, as well, like you, you take. Um... The fixation and this 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 like, notion of uh, the Illuminati in the conspiracy sphere—it it's just a, the the word has been taken out of you know any kind of meaningful sort of historical or cultural context, and it's just a hook to hang on something else, some some fantasy. Some some fantasy about some you know some the you know something completely different.
0: I don't think Robert Hanson Wilson particularly helped with that. I mean, I love his book, The Illuminati trilogy, but really, I think that was what really pushed The Illuminati into. uh, into the kind of conspiracy culture because he wrote a book that was fictionally about the Illuminati conspiracy running the world and for some reason some certain people seem to think it was real <laughs> to, took
1: it a bit too and all, um, well they've missed out on a, 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 a the notion of irony
2: mm-hmm. the and yeah, humor yeah, and yeah.
1: humor humor and irony which aren't you know big with conspiracy theorists and, no. yeah, usually yeah all those all well, sort of the problem
2: is people often want to believe well, you know, it's also the evil of egalitarianism. You know, people think that they have a right to know what goes on in everything. You don't have the right to know. Just because you don't know what's going on doesn't mean it's something that is nefarious. It's simply different, simply private. And you don't have, and if you want to know go join petition or lodge, and join but you don't have a right to know
1: yeah and often where there is the sacred there is the secret and there's a difference between there's a difference between knowing and understanding the the internet is full of you know all intellect is paper and the internet is full of words and and knowledge but there's where the understanding and that again comes back to the the lived reality deliver experience of say initiation as an example where 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 the those archetypes uh, you know well, well up, let's, come just, to let's life. just
2: look at it this way i mean you know to to address maybe some more philosophical points and and move us even away from masonry uh the the notion is is that there's good forces and bad forces good and evil in the cosmos to some degree and uh, that these have some degrees of uh, of verifiability or at least uh, visibility of action in, in the world in which we exist. And we've all met, well, hope I don't know if we all have, I'm assuming we all have. We've met a variety of people who we know and trust and like, which are fairly good. And people who we even may know and trust and don't like <laughs> who are or, or evil or bad. Uh, I mean, I've worked with criminals. I've worked with very dangerous people and, uh, you have to say, okay, now, if this person is dangerous on this level, uh, how much more dangerous would they be if they were smart, not just clever? Okay, and if they're really cunning, you know, what level of authority or power could they achieve? And are they not alone? And they form networks. So we call that organized crime. We call that terrorism. We call that uh, revolutionary movements, unless they're successful, then we call them uh, patriots. And so you have these things that go on. And then you have this notion of what is the connection to the invisible. And this is where it gets tricky, because uh, we want to think of the cosmos as always being user friendly. And uh, maybe it is, but the cosmos is made up of these archetypal forces and qualities as well. And within those archetypal energies, as we've talked about in Egregores, there's collective groups, and they have agendas. And those agendas uh, are what we would call conspiracies. And the invisible isn't concerned with our notions of right and wrong for the most part. And when the invisible seeks a visible host, uh, it just seeks to to fulfill its function So you have various visible movements, churches, religions, esoteric groups, uh, philosophical groups, charitable organizations, uh, colleges, universities, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, PTAs. All of these things ultimately have a connection with the invisible, knowingly or unknowingly. And that's where this notion of conspiracy comes in, because people get a sense that there's more behind the curtain than they can see. They even know. They may know someone. I've known people who are in government and military. They have interesting stories they've said. Uh, Interesting people I've met. And within that framework of what goes on behind the curtain. Well, when someone is very uncomfortable with the ambiguity, they need to fill in the blank. And then they'll often fill in the blank very concretely. Because they're being very concrete in themselves. Somehow they think that if they can't fill in that blank, it'll erase the fear or the uh, unease that comes with not knowing. But it doesn't. Because even if the best and the worst conspiracy stories were true, and they probably are. So what? What can you do about it? What does knowing this truth do for you? How does it? make your life any better i can certainly tell you how it makes your life worse but how does it make it better what can you do with it because you can't convince anyone you may take to the streets in a soapbox and you may be that crazy homeless person who is truly a prophet (laughs) (laughs) who is speaking truth but no one pays attention or cares so at the end of the day we have to look at all of these systems as saying And all of these questions of how does this help me on my path? Which then the question is, well, what is my path? And within masonry, the path is clearly pointed out in the third degree, which is a death and resurrection ritual. You know, we are to prepare ourselves so that we may be useful here on earth to our fellow human beings. And we are to become a block in the temple of the grand architect, whatever that happens to be. But that block, that symbolism of the smooth ashlar is a very interesting one because the stone is hard. The stone is smooth, meaning it can fit in anywhere. All the rough edges are gone. It's in a sense, very adaptable. It's useful in many places and positions and locations, not just one. And in a sense, it's unlimited. Being firm and strong as stone is, it also means that it can withstand the pressure of those things around it, as well as support them. And, you know, that is what our purpose here is in our metaphysical pursuits, is to create a sense of self that is firm and strong and can withstand the pressures of the knot from which we have come.
0: I mean, um, earlier on, we we touched upon the Illuminati, and I think it's actually more interesting. You know, truth is is often stranger than, and more interesting than fiction. Um, but I'd like to discuss the kind of uh, the links between the you know, the real links between the Illuminati, the real Illuminati, and the and Freemasonry, because you know my understanding is there is a there was an inception at least at one point of the illuminati into freemasonry and invo- involved cagliostro and uh and various you know various others i was wondering if you could talk to that
2: uh, i can't uh, i've never really followed that line up too much i know there's a wonderful book that just came out that you and i both got our copies of mine just came about 10 minutes before the show <laughs> yeah uh, and it's a it's a doorstop. It's it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, remember this was a different time. You had secret societies because it was dangerous to to meet in the open. You had uh, men and to some degree some women, uh, particularly in Caius Egyptian right. Uh, they were dealing with governments that were police states. I mean, day to day for the average person, it was okay. You did your job. You you know you did your work, paid your taxes. Not much was, you know, to worry about. But you didn't try to change anything. You know, you watched what you published, and if not, you end up in, in prison, and for an uncertain period of time. And so all of these royal families, which is what they were, they were royalty. They were they ran uh you know semi-feudal police states for lack of a better description in modern language and many of these people were trying to change that and you didn't change that overnight and you didn't change it quickly and you had to be very careful because a lot of people had a great deal to lose and things could go very badly as we saw with the french revolution that went very very badly So if you're going to get intelligentsia behind you with some degree of secrecy and have international contacts, there was no better mechanism than masonry.
0: Yeah, it's um, I, I've always just found it quite an interesting kind of um, area of, uh, you know, of, of history in general, you know, you also have the um, elusive alchemical Count Saint-Germain involved with this whole period of time as well. and. Um, I, I, I don't know if you ever looked into him at all. We we did a show on him recently.
2: Well, Saint Germain is a an interesting fellow, and probably the best book written about him was by uh, who was it? The Comte de Saint Germain, the last scion of the House of Ricosi by Gene Overton Fuller. Oh yes, that's probably the best book on him, if you can find it. Uh You know, and of course, he was from Hungarian Transylvanian birth. I always find that interesting. It's almost like uh, Count Dracula was his counterpart in some regards, the (laughs) evil alchemist. Uh, But within that framework, of course, he's taken to Italy. He's raised there by family. He he has access to spectacular education and wealth. And uh, he goes off and 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 does whatever this mission is that he does. We we don't really know. And I and I and I think it's really uh, silly to to attempt to to say we know. Uh, I do believe that there's some folks who do know, and uh, that he was an alchemist and that he had tremendous capacity for transmutation. I know. Uh, Jean Dubuis, the the French alchemist who who founded the philosophers of nature, who I knew, um, fortunately, as uh, he would say that uh, Saint-Germain's transmutations, uh, you know, that he could make diamonds. And uh, I think that when we look at someone like that, it's very difficult to understand what we're talking about. So we have people who want to turn him into a kind of comic book superhero, which is what uh, the theosophists do, and and then Amor to some degree after that. A lot of the writings in the late 19th, early 20th century tend to do that. Or they want to reduce him to very quantifiable understandings uh, some recent biographies on paracelsus are like that we simply don't know what they were doing
0: no it's yeah. interesting that you bring up um theosophy because obviously theosophy um intersects at some point especially in the kind of uh revival periods of masonry and I was wondering, yeah, that, I mean, obviously, Blavatsky um, was a, allegedly met uh, Saint Germain, but there is this philosophical uh, kind of um, crossroads, isn't there, with uh, theosophy and Freemasonry, and in particular, Co-Masonry was a, a, a kind of fallout from that crossover. Could uh, could you talk a bit about philosophy and, and and Freemasonry?
2: Well, of course, you know, St. Germain was involved in Masonic circles. We have him attending Masonic conventions and some knowledge of that. I think there's some verification of that. Of course, what was the purpose? We don't know. And, of course, following on his heels is Cagliostra, which is uh, a series of, of interesting contradictions. But we move forward into theosophy, and, you know, Blavatsky's great claim, of course, was contact with her invisible masters her great white brotherhood and whatever that happened to be so at some point in the theosophical movement and I don't know when I'd have to look it up but I know it's in the book uh, co-masonry becomes a, a force and what, what the why this is interesting is because this was a Masonic body that was overtly esoteric, and it was for both men and women. It wasn't just uh, male only. And the reason for the male only is often given because of some of the uh, partial ritual nudity. Just for those who are wondering, that takes place in the first degree, the bearing of the breast how would you do that in polite circles with women? Okay, so to clear that point up. Now, co-masonry is a organization that your listeners can easily look up today. And uh, they may very easily join a lodge should they desire it. It exists, it's out there, and there are many groups and affiliated groups, at least in the United States that I've seen. So it is uh, a movement that is clearly Masonic and, very, and works Masonic degrees and is very esoteric in its understanding of those degrees and its nature. And that was somewhat typical because this is now taking place at the time of the occult revival. So we also see various groups of, of Martinism. In Martinism, there's uh, Gerard and Couze, Papous. He had a secret dream that Martinism would become the capstone of masonry, supplanting the 32nd degree and all of that, and that never happened. Thank God. Uh, and then, of course, we see various Rosicrucian groups coming up in France, uh, Palladon's uh, Catholic Rosecois or Universal Rosecois, uh, which continues to this day. We see the Rose Croix Cabaliste, which continues to this day. And uh, we see various offshoots of that, of which the most famous and infamous for some, but influential clearly on a worldwide basis, at least as far as the 20th century goes, would be the ancient mystical order Rosicrucius or Amorc out of San Jose, California. And that has a somewhat of a Masonic structure to it. In terms of degrees, it has nine degrees. Uh, basic degrees—that's 12 in total—but that, that's another story. And you know, these degrees have names that are very similar or identical to what you would find in uh, either the Golden Dawn's degrees or in the uh, uh, Society Rosicrucian degrees (SRIA degrees). So a lot of overlap and cross-fertilization and just outright copying was going on. And Amwork has a little bit of a homage to Egyptian masonry too as well, a little bit.
1: Hmm. And my understanding is um, also as well, you've got the, uh, that, um, those influences of uh, masonry and um, alchemy in um, Fucinelli's The Brotherhood of Heli- Heliopolis. And he explores, you know, um, masonry in a literal sense in terms of like Notre Dame from a sort of alchemical point of view. So there's a kind of, I mean, a, a Freemasonic sort of glue in there somewhere, isn't there? Well, there must be, because we're talking literally about buildings and then about alchemy. And so there's a, that's in there somewhere.
2: Well, correct. And that's the great part. And we have to ask where? because we have these buildings of the cathedrals and we have the building guilds of which masonry says it goes back to the medieval builders guilds as it's mythic history and they're building these spectacular cathedrals now how much of falconelli is correct is is anyone's guess but it's a great story oh yeah and it's and it's a spectacular idea because even if he's in error, if it's just his fantasy of what he's seeing, what he wants to see, because it's easy, it's all religious symbolism, so it'd be very easy to see it. Uh, it's almost would be impossible not to make the connections, even if the connections aren't intentional. They can still be there and still be effective, because that's the way how archetypes work. Archetypes work; they don't work in a linear fashion. They work in an associative fashion. So. We see then the nature of what is the role of architect and institutions. And, you know, we create our institutions, as a friend of mine says, we shape our institutions and then they shape us. And going back to guarding all the Western Gate, that's institutions are also made up of people and places and the things that they do there or hold there. So you will become like, and this is why the fraternity is so important you'll become like the people you spend the most time with. So if you spend your time with people who are helpful and kind and generous and philosophical and outgoing, you'll become like that. If you spend people time with people who are unconcerned with uh, those questions, you'll become like that. And if you spend your time with people who are criminals, you will become like them. Why do you think cops become so jaded? And corrupt at times. And I've known a lot of police. I worked in housing. You know, that's why I say that. Why do you think social workers become so broken? Because they spend all their time with broken, addicted, criminal, one you know, combination of all of the above people. Those those things are contagious. On a psychic level, psychic contagion, and so we talked about in the book on egregores. That's we say: pick your friends carefully. Yeah, you are the company you keep. Um, you, yeah, your grandmother, your mother was right. Your grandmother's right. I'll know you by your friends, and we know there's certain exceptions to that, but for the most part, it's true. Yes, yes um, I'm, I'm,
1: I regard myself as very blessed with my friends.
0: So. There not know so um i mean one on you know continuing on the subject of the esoteric i suppose um one of the most uh important i'd say more modern um esoteric offshoots of the of freemasonry is the golden dawn um you know that they, they, they you could argue they've their, you know their influence on western es- esotericism in particular is you know it's unparalleled in many ways um could you perhaps talk about the golden dawn a little bit and um more importantly kind of uh I, i've always been interested in the relationship between the golden dawn and freemasonry on a, on a literal level you know, was there a relationship obviously the members were co-members but did freemasonry in any way recognize the golden dawn or, or did the golden golden dawn even sort of um intend to try and be recognized by freemasonry or you know official on an official capacity or
2: That I can't answer. I don't know, but I don't believe it did. I mean, we know that the founding members were all Freemasons, and many of the members were Masons. Uh, However, I do do know that in the uh, publication The New Age, which was a Masonic publication in the 1920s, and I had a copy of this one in particular, and I I remember picking it up because uh, it specifically stated the Golden Dawn as an organization to stay away from, warning its members against and i think there we have that point of not understanding esotericism and the golden dawn of course its influence on occultism is unparalleled i have to, and even pop culture is unparalleled i think amor however is a larger deeper and more pervasive influence I mean, I, I've gone into that in other other shows as to why but I, I think it's because and both of them have again either a direct connection or a pseudo connection to masonry the lodge structure, the nature of degrees, secret wisdom being transmitted everything is very very similar. What makes the Golden Dawn special, truly is special, is the body of techniques or methods which it produced in terms of ritual that had not existed prior to it. The suggestion is there. And if we read Agrippa, we can even see, again, some ideas suggesting it is there. But the actual rituals aren't there. And those rituals would later go on to influence, again, as we've seen, the OTO, but also modern witchcraft, modern Wicca, many neo-pagan groups, and a host of other esoteric movements. And, in fact, one becomes very hard-pressed today to find a magical movement in existence that is not in some way uh, a variation of the Golden Dawn rituals.
1: Yeah, I mean the way I I tend to look at it, and I uh, I might be wrong here, is that you've got like regular Freemasonry, and then you've got but you've got this thing that it, the the Masonic landscape. And mushrooming, and you know, in the hinter, mm. in in the undergrowth, are uh, yes. these are uh, these like mushrooming, these like little fertile things popping up, and they they have their roots in, in in masonry of some sort or another, and it's in the you can see it in them, but they sort of take masonry, and they sort of like it sprouts off in this, you know, sort of eccentric well. Well,
2: here place. it's specifically the Ros- Rosicrucian College. Uh, which is invitation only i I was given an invitation to one of our colleges probably 15 years ago or so and i declined only because of distance it was just like a a three and a half hour drive to get to meetings and that wasn't going to happen so i said it's better to decline than to accept something that i can't participate in and I, i was honest about it i said thank you very much but i can't make it but there the distance was much shorter and these people were Making it to their Masonic bodies, they were making it to their meetings, uh, they were going for these high grade, these proliferations which have both strengths and weaknesses. And uh, here was the Rosicrucian colleges, which were the college which was most influential in, in helping to shape the Golden Dawn. And uh, I don't believe it ever sought official recognition because I don't think it ever needed it. It was too busy, uh, McGregor Mathers and company were too busy growing their organization. And it I'm sure that they would have accepted it had it been offered, uh, like uh, Nkuzza Papus, you know, he wanted Martinism to become this crown jewel of masonry. Uh, I think that was a bit ambitious and unnecessary and it didn't happen. But masonry was very protective then as it is now, and even more so then. if they thought you were trying to, uh, uh, I don't want to say stage a coup, but I think you get the idea somehow take things over uh, you could very quickly you know be shown the curb
1: yeah i'm i must mention this i can't possibly not mention it but uh, i in in i've i've managed very. i'm very privileged actually to have these but i i found a collection of, of old books which uh, some obviously well-established freemason must have collected over the years and um and their emphasis is definitely on the, the towards the hermetic side the esoteric side of things and i there were publications of this um uh, quite a modest looking sort of organ um,
2: actually called the transactions of the masonic study society oh those you know those are boring titles and you and you find these boring things in there like some minutes of this meeting minutes of that meeting and often buried in there are some really spectacular articles. Oh in yeah, those, yeah, in those various minutes. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Those transactions, I mean. Yeah. And, well, and if you just, I don't want to cut you off, but if you if you get a copy of some of the even newer ritual ritual booklets, like we would use in Scottish Rite, uh, there'll be no, notes in the back about Kabbalah and alchemy. It's clearly stated. If 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 you have a if you have a Masonic Bible. Uh, I don't have mine in reach. Otherwise, I'd read off what the publishing company is. There's a whole index of words in the beginning, which has Hermes, Hermes Trismegistus, Kabbalah. <laughs> and I'd open the Bible and I would point this out to the brethren. I'd say, guys, did you read your Bible?
1: Yeah, I mean, this this group, uh, these these transactions of the Masonic Studies Society, um, they clearly were very passionate. About that aspect of things, and they, and in the ones I've got, I've got ones from the 70s, and and a few from the 80s. I don't even know if it survived, or even if, even if that organisation exists anymore. But they have in them, they somebody has sort of uh, reproduced the catapultistic tree of life, and and placed the landmarks of masonry, Freemasonry, as they see it, on upon the Sephiroth. Uh, they talk about um you know in the great masonic hall in london the on queen street i believe it is you know you, you step over a pentagram to get in and you're you're under it you're under its protection and they relate that explicitly to uh, golden dawn rituals it's 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 really fascinating how there was clearly a, a group of people who, within um, regular masonry, who who had that very strong emphasis, that strong interest, and, and, was, and were meeting and studying from that particular perspective.
2: And therein lies the beauty of masonry as a big umbrella, a big tent, that in an ideal situation that is not only capable but it happens right alongside men who simply don't care and they're there for fraternity or to do some charitable work or maybe to get out of the house for a night and uh right there at next door is another group who are concerned with the deepest mysteries of uh the human psyche and life itself yeah
1: i mean even the uh this, this uh, sort of body, the Masonic Studies Society, their, their emblem, which is, is printed on these, uh, you know, they're, they're modest pamphlets, but like I say, they got some fascinating, you know, they got some fascinating impl- implications and material in them, actually. And uh, their, their emblem is uh, the Ouroboros and mm. a lamp, a lit lamp with the... Um, the uh, m Masonic Studies Society, the initials sort of emblazoned on that, uh, even that in itself is, you know, it's it's such a rich, intriguing thing. So intriguing, I mean, you know, totally intriguing.
2: Well, therein lies the beauty of of the Masonic path, is that it is uh, wide and varied, and has many offshoots, and uh, why it's such a fascinating organization. And again, uh, the book that I wrote, The Path of Freemasonry, is not just about Masonry, it's about the Masonic view, so that one can be a brother or sister without apron, if you will, who understands the, the, the fundamental philosophical and spiritual views, because our spiritual experiences, our experiences are what we take with us, and those are going to be based upon our philosophical foundation. What is our view? What do we see ourselves as being and being potential of? And in that sense, we are self-created or self-creating creatures. And this goes back to, uh, and I think we had mentioned it earlier, you know, Alaphis Levy and his definition of the great work of, you know, we are uh, self-created beings in which we, we, we take the kingdom of heaven by storm.
1: Yeah, we are we are creature and creators, uh, Nietzsche. Once wrote and uh, and Levy Eliphus Levy. I mean, he himself. But uh, uh, my understanding is that he joined the Masons at some point, the Freemasons, and he wrote. Uh, he must be one of the first writers, uh, all of the, yeah, one of the most earliest writers who wrote specifically with that sort of uh, uh, hermetic view of Masonry. And the, uh, my understanding is he joined in order to try to revive that or try to re- reignite that interest, that aspect
2: of it. Uh, well, I'm sure he did, and, and that was that was a drive in many people's reasons for joining Masonry, and that's an unfortunate one because it it doesn't happen. Uh, you can what I have found is that one meets a wonderful bunch of people in Masonry, and that some of those brethren may be involved in other esoteric movements that are similar to it, but you rarely find uh, an esoteric Masonry. I mean, co-masonry is a, an example, but uh, within ma- tr- what we would call regular masonry, it's rare. You know, this notion of truly esoteric action, uh, similar to what you might find in the Golden Dawn taking place in a Masonic Lodge. Uh, I've not seen it.
0: I think the only one I've seen in, you know, local to us, where there was a recent revival of the Memphis Misere, uh in London. Um, I only know about that because we know one of the founding founding yes, members personally, but
2: yeah. And that's Memphis Misraim, That's even a whole other ballgame altogether. You can depends on what jurisdiction you're in. You may that may get you kicked out of regular masonry associating with Memphis Misraim, depending on what, where you're at for different reasons. Why? Why is that?
0: I, I mean, I I know somewhat about the Memphis Misraim, but it's, it's a it's a term you hear a lot but could you maybe go into that a bit like what, what... Well, it's egyptian
2: masonry it's mostly italian but it's you know what we associate with cagliostro and um, it's an organization you know so there's different people in charge of different jurisdictions and they may have different uh agendas on their own I've known several people in it here in the United States. It never really took off in the U.S. You know, the leadership was never able to get it off the ground. However, that's not the same elsewhere. Other places, it's done very well. It's taken off very well. I'm not particularly familiar with all of its contents, but it, what I have been told is that some of the degree work, the aspects have to deal with the what I had mentioned earlier, the survival and continuity of consciousness. You know, what we think of as immortality. So it has a a tremendous amount of alchemical and uh, Kabbalistic work within it. And in theory, from an Egyptian framework, although that may not always be the case, at least from what I've seen.
0: Mm, Interesting. I I um you know uh, we're obviously we've uh, taken up a lot of your time and uh, I would like to just touch on one last particular point and that was uh, the Gerald Gardner connection um uh with with freemasonry we sort of mentioned it earlier um i was wondering if you could talk to that because it is interesting wiccans in particular seem to be very uh, oh yeah i
2: wish you to gave me this question ahead of time i would have researched it better because I, <laughs> I, I i had a couple of books on gardner in my hand just a few days ago and i said oh i'll get to these later <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, which which ones I read them just, out of curio- uh, sorry, just out of curiosity
1: which ones were they
2: Oh, I don't even remember because uh, uh, I was shuffling through a stack. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, you know how that is—you're shuffling, trying to organize the pile better so it doesn't fall over as quickly on you.
1: <laughs> I mean, what what little I understand, apart from the he he wasn't a Entered um, Apprentice, um, he also
2: um, was a friend... Which, with... just for the clarification of listeners, that means he never became a Master Mason. No. However, he would have been exposed to the most. Uh, One of the most fascinating uh, aspects of Masonic symbolism, truly fascinating, you would have seen uh, at that stage in his lodge, and it would have given him a sense of ritual that one sees embodied in Wicca. I can see the parts that are are, are carried out there. Uh, And again, this, this changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it's the ritual binding the blindfolding, the escorting, all of that is part of the entered apprentice ritual. And it, uh, it's just when, it, when the whole thing is on, uh, reaches its climax, its point of completion, it has just a, a spectacular uh, impact on the candidate emotionally, emotionally. So <clears throat> I, I can see where a lot of that early ritual work is is is, and he could have found that. By the way, he could easily have found that in some what were called exposés, Masonic expose was a, a ritual that would have been published.
1: Yeah, and and also my my understanding is of um, Gardner another influence from the Masonic side of things is that he was uh, a close associate of uh, um, uh, a Masonic scholar called J S M Ward. And J.S.M. Um, Ward, um, he wrote a book called Who um, Was Hiram and uh, and But J.S.M. Ward was involved in lots of different things. He was very interested in um, preserving old buildings, for example. Mm. And um, the famous, uh, what Gerald Gardner came to call the, the Witch's Cottage at Brickett Wood, yes. where he did all the initiations, that originally was preserved by J.S.M. Ward. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there's that. Yes, and so there's that. But that uh, link again with that. How is that cottage? Was there a fire there or a flood? A flood a few years back, if I remember correctly. My understanding is it's still there, but it's is a bit uh, is a bit uh, beaten
2: up and um, unloved. But uh, it's, it's still there. That's unfortunate. I hope they. I hope they can preserve it. You know, getting a little off track, we have a, a conference every year here, the Institute for Medic Studies, uh, and we're in northeastern PA. And uh, this year, in in when we have our conference in May, we're going to be having the uh, director of the Raymond Buckland uh, Museum of Witchcraft. He's coming out from Cleveland to uh, present. So I'm kind of looking forward to uh, seeing what he has to say and, and getting some more insight about their there operation their displays and their collection i think it's going to be very interesting
0: yeah sounds that sounds great why do you think it is wiccans in particular seem so adverse to this kind of connection with with freemasonry they they in particular whenever i've spoken to wiccans about this they really really have a kind of uh, vehement- uh I'll, bl-
2: I'll blame it on z budapest just out of convenience <laughs> I, and i think i say that half jokingly but when we look at the Movement. When we look at the early witchcraft movement in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, particularly Sibylle, who used to visit here regularly, uh, which was a big deal. It would make it in the newspapers even. And <laughs> I was talking to some youngins the other day, and of course, transplants to the area, who because uh, they never know the history, they, they rarely bother to learn it. And uh, I said, well, you realize that, you know, who Sibylique is, right? And of course, uh, yeah, Sibylique, yeah. okay, so Diary of a Witch and all that. I so, said, well, well, she used to visit the area regularly, and, and she would go and see Dr. Frederick Santee in Wapwallopin, which is, uh, you know, boondocks as you can get. And uh, I said, and, and of course, you know, his coven, Coven of the Cata, was featured on the History Channel. I, I, I did some of the, uh, the the work on that. You can see a younger version of me there, but more importantly, there's online you can find photographs. You couldn't, you know, when I did that, you couldn't find them. They were hard to find, but also articles that appeared in the Bloomsburg newspaper, the Witch's Corner, I think it was called, that the column which ran for years, where one of his students or two of his students would would write these columns about uh, health and nutrition and a little bit of witchcraft or folklore. And so this whole notion of witchcraft as a persecuted entity begins to fall apart, you know, in in light of that. I mean, we're talking, you know, central and rural Pennsylvania here. And I I jokingly say it's not that we uh, do witchcraft or magic better here uh, than you guys do in California or New York. Uh, We've just been doing it longer. Uh, oh, no, I, no, that's wrong. We've been doing it longer and we do it better uh, <laughs> because there's a culture of it that goes back hundreds of years. But but when you move into Wicca and you turn it away from witchcraft and magic, which uh, there's some really powerful goetic and grimoire and and demonical elements in that. And they want to ignore that. They want to pretend that's not there. OK. And they want to turn it completely into the, the old religion reborn. And they want to turn it into a religion of worship rather than magic, which we have to make a distinction of magic being opera, operational and, and magic being devotional. Or excuse me, religion being devotional. Uh, when we do that, then you have to uh, recreate a mythos. And that mythos was heavily politicized uh, under feminism and uh, really, you know, yeah, that, that would be probably the strongest one, but uh, some very strong political movement, you know, notions got infused into the movement. And that's where you see where Wicca over time and most of these movements, the OTO now and a lot of other groups just solely degraded into liberal political action committees, as opposed to being operative entities of education and self-development and self-awareness. So their attention got turned around. Instead of being focused within, in one's own becoming, it gets turned without and gets involved in social action. And at that part, they all fall apart. I mean, that happened to the mainstream churches. That's why they collapsed, too. and yeah. begins to replace it
1: yeah i mean without without light and shade there is no depth and that's that's true of of art and it's true of life and it's true of everything else to be fair i mean i'm i'm no wiccan i i you know i'm i'm, I'm couldn't be further from it but i've met a, a few in my time i've met a, a few uh Covenant um coven members and they're the ones i've met at least their their take their take on the freemasonic crossover is actually is is actually quite fair and and quite objective
2: i I think one of the other aspects too has to do with as it becomes more politicized and the anti-christian and catholic in particular rhetoric ramps up within the wiccan movement uh coupled with that really idiotic statement. We are not Satanists. Okay, great. That that, that really didn't, that cleared the waters a lot, uh, as I, I like to tell them. Uh, tell us what you are, not what you aren't. Uh, coupled with the satanic panic of the 80s and early 90s, uh, there was just kind of this wholesale uh, hyper-feminizing of it. It became a movement that was specifically marketed towards teenage girls and young women not much you know not very different from the way most magical texts particularly Crowley OTO Kabbalah is marketed towards 15 to 28 year old men
0: yeah it's definitely interesting um uh, I, I thought we'd uh, finish off with I mean the last time we had you on um we spoke about a um mr james wasserman um who wrote the forward to Egregors, i was just wondering because if we've had him as a guest on the show so often i, I, I would i'd like you to talk about your uh, relationship with lon milo Dequette, uh a good friend of ours um you know uh, he, he, wrote, he wrote the introduction to the path of Freemasonry, one of the introductions i should say um can you talk about your relationship with lon and um yeah that would be great to hear yeah.
2: Well, my relationship with Lon is, is somewhat uh, unusual. I mean, I, I am not now, nor have I ever been a member of the OTO, but we would run across each other at conferences, and I read his book, My Life with the Spirits, which was very fascinating and funny, and in some ways similar to my own. We had a lot of similar experiences. And um, his book on Enochian magic, his new one, not new one, uh, new it, for, it's not that new, maybe it's about 10 years old now. Um, which takes kind of a traditional approach, uh, has this little footnote in there, and and it's clear. I mean, it says, you know, uh, I'd like to thank Christos Pierre for the uh, notes on and that made this book possible. It was from a uh, seminar that he gave in Pittston, Pennsylvania, and it gives the, the year and everything. And, and that was a seminar that we had sponsored. I, I was involved in setting that up and, and making that happen. So, you know, I've had this connection with Juan, in different mechanisms and ways and we've spoken on the phone and uh i was asked to write some stuff for one of his books and and i asked him to write this for mine and and i found him to be a very enjoyable and uh a very humorous and pleasant and uh, uh informative uh, person and um i i think that uh, you know his, his take is very lighthearted, but still serious in terms of how he approaches uh, his understanding of of all of this magic. Now, of course, it, it is again mostly geared towards an OTO or or, or as I say a Crowleyite thelemic perspective, uh, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I just don't uh, I just don't follow it in, in myself. My relationship with with James Wasserman was was probably closer. We spoke on the phone more often, and uh, had very a variety of more projects involved and. I think we knew more of the same people within the publishing realm. So we were a little closer there.
0: That's great. So, last time you were on, you were talking about um, some of your new uh, projects. One was with, I can't remember the name of the, Anathema, wasn't it? I think. Um, how's that coming along? And, you know, when when do you think we'll be seeing that? I, I'm,
2: I understand it'll be at the mid fall or winter of this year. It'll be near the end of this year. It is a wonderful Masonic sounding title, Order Out of Chaos. It's going to be two volumes, hardcover deluxe with spectacular artwork, which uh, I'm just thrilled to see. And it's uh, a series of essays that I wrote over a period of two years. So it's it's fairly comprehensive on various aspects of uh, esotericism and and practical work. I I hate to call it an advanced book. Uh, Everyone likes to say that phrase. I I look at, at it more as, as I said earlier, like in Scottish right, you know, everyone's a master mason, but what we're looking at now is we're, we're going back over the same material, but with a different perspective. And I think that's what I, the way I'd like to say what order out of chaos is. It looks at taking a lot of these ideas that we hear about in esotericism and finding some very, very practical ways of dealing with them or using them in our day-to-day life to get our lives together. Because that's why we undertake occult practices to begin with, because we don't like our lives. If we did, we wouldn't undertake them. We're trying to make sense or bring order to that chaos, which is our life. So there's some very good methods in there. And uh, one of them one of the essays is a very lengthy one. It's on the, na- the nature of willpower. What is will? We hear about this all the time in occultism and yoga and all these things. And and it was really nice to hear that uh, one of our board members, who is a Jungian therapist and uh, a PhD in philosophy and a professor of philosophy, he wrote his dissertation on will. And he said, this is probably the best paper he's ever read on it. And these the approach throughout the books is designed to be practical you know it's it's a it's a very easy to read without being uh silly or stupid approach to some very difficult ideas that have deep meaning in our lives
0: fantastic and did you I've, i think you mentioned um you might have had some other projects on the go as well uh, could you talk about those at all? well
2: we've always got things we have our conference in may uh We have to, uh, you know, that's going to be both live and uh, tele-broadcast or, you know, live streamed in some fashion. We have uh, publications always coming out of old essays. I mean, I've been writing for so many years that uh, it's time to get a lot of those essays out of the drawers, uh, find out which ones are going to survive another decade and which ones are going to disappear into the the good night and uh, get them published in some kind of uh, uh, form. So that's where a lot of our work is going. And at the Institute for Hermetic Studies, we've also initiated this year, uh, our first class of uh, teacher trainees. So esotericism continues as a tradition. And while that tradition can be soft or strong or in between, it requires continuity. That's what tradition is, continuity across generations. So we have eight uh, men and women who have volunteered to participate in this program. And they're getting their, their feet wet in terms of what does it really mean to want to help instruct others in an oh, esoteric path.
0: And uh, you do you run online courses, yeah. don't you, as well um, on teach, te- Teachable? Yeah. That
2: is correct, through Teachable. Your listeners can just find the Institute for Hermetic Studies online at teachable.com. And we have a host of courses they can sign up for. And our introductory course, Unfolding the Rose, is six hours plus additional material. We'll be adding more shortly. We're going to be adding some brief five- and ten-minute videos from our teacher trainees. We're going to add those to it, too. And uh, that's for free. You just sign up for that, and no cost to you excellent and we will
0: put a link to that again in the uh, in the notes of this show uh thanks so much for coming back on um uh, it's, it's always a pleasure and i'm already thinking of excuses to try and get you back on again soon <laughs>
2: <laughs> well we'll do uh we'll do something like uh between the gates so we'll have some mm. fun with that maybe yeah
0: that sounds great excellent thank you so much yes thank, well, thank you. you very much yes thank you for your words
1: and your thoughts and and your time again
0: And we are back. That was quite a cool episode. I enjoyed that. Um, Mark is always, uh, um, you know, a, a very interesting guest, a very, very giving with information, and uh, very conversational. Wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think he represents well the the book um, that we were sort of uh, focusing on today, which I I would I wouldn't hesitate to uh, recommend to those who are interested in Freemasonry, pers- particularly from his sort of uh, the uh, hermetic uh, sort of mystery perspective mm. or approach.
0: Yeah, I mean, and don't forget, uh, d- check out his um, his course on Teachable. If you come to uk after entering the uh, Tobias Churton competition on episode 60, you can also check out the links to the free course that he mentions. I had a quick look at it and it actually looks really interesting, um, especially if, you know, if someone dipping into the kind of... Uh, esoteric world it's definitely a good uh primer i would say uh for that kind of thing um but yeah no it's it, I, I i get the impression we could probably have spoken about freemasonry for uh quite a long time uh, and gone down many different alleyways wouldn't you say
1: absolutely you could have a whole podcast dedicated to um you know the the the, the rich flora and fauna or the masonic landscape and uh, and its various various forms there probably are podcasts yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i just don't yeah, know about not them, as, good but... as not as good as this one well, i mean naturally, not, naturally no i mean there's a, a i mean it's appropriate enough because you know there there's a great deal of craft i must say ken you put, put a great deal of craft into the, the podcast <laughs> oh, thank you very much the hand of the, the invisible hand of the craftsman is at work so you know the the sort of you know the sort of crude gristle of 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 banter is is sort of cut to the lean meat of, of debate. <laughs> I, I think I notice I get excised a lot <laughs> from it, and uh, and you know witty. All, quite a few of my witty. You Know it's sort of reposts and and bon mots and uh scintillating insights that uh, end up on the uh cutting room floor, so to speak. Lost gems, I like to think of. Them. <laughs> well, Lost gems, of which I must say it's, it's an act of cultural vandalism on par with the the, the burning of the uh the the libraries of Alexandria. But we, we won't linger on that unsavory, that unsavory vision. And uh, but, but uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh.
0: Yeah, anyway uh on that kind of uh <laughs> on that note um do follow us on youtube uh, si- uh at oh, it's not at is it? it's youtube so it's just sitting now uh one word si uh instagram sitting now at sitting now see that's where the at is uh you can find us on twitter sitting now surprise surprise and of course online uh mothership uh sitting uk. uh we're coming back next week i believe with carl abrahamson uh to talk about uh a satanic character. And anyway, we shall see you next week.